Welcome to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. In this episode, I speak with Matt Irwin, who came to the Mar Addiction Treatment Center about 20 years ago, first as a client. He stuck around and volunteered and eventually became a counselor. He's one of our long-term staff members here, and he talks about that transition from client to volunteer to counselor and what role Mar has played in his life. The night before Father's Day in 1998, um, it's a Saturday, um, I think it was June 19th, um, I had just hit a bottom. I, I had tried 12-step programs. I had been to treatment before. I had gone to psychiatrist. I had gone to psychologist. I have a huge supportive family. Uh, I, I had great friends. I had all of these resources and all of these ways that I had tried to stop drinking. And early on, I wasn't really interested in stopping drinking. I was trying to figure out a way to stop the consequences and control my drinking. But near the end, the last two or three years that I drank, I did everything in my power to, to not drink at all. Um, and, and I had tons of resources and help, like I said, and failed miserably, miserably. And um, I had sort of always thought when I really make up my mind to get sober, I'll be able to get sober. And it was a crushing blow at the end, those last two years, when I made up my mind 100% to get sober. And I was just as unsuccessful when I decided to get sober as I was when I was sort of just manipulating people. Mm -hmm. And I gave up. I absolutely positively gave up. And I don't know the exact details of that day, but I know I was drinking every day at that point. Um, and somewhere along the way, I was living in Huntsville, Alabama. And somewhere along the way, I bought a bottle of vodka. And the only reason I know that is later that night, they found it in my bag. And I wasn't someone who stopped and got a bottle of vodka. I usually drink beer. And I went to visit my grandmother's mm -hmm. and probably one of the most like self-centered things you can do and basically just told my grandmothers that I gave up. Um, I was going to visit my dad again for Father's Day, so I drove to my dad's house. And um, I don't really remember getting there, but I just went into the bedroom and, and passed out. And unfortunately, that wasn't, um, that wasn't an unusual thing for me. So that wasn't that, wasn't that alarming for anyone. And um, my mom felt like something was wrong and she lived in Atlanta and um, she and my dad had been divorced for 25 years at that point. And she called my dad and said, something is wrong. I don't know what, but something's wrong. And um, um, he didn't think anything was wrong. He thought it was normal. And she said, please take him to the hospital. And he said, I don't want to do that. And she said, you need to take him to the hospital. Something's wrong. So he put me in the car and um, he and my, my stepmother and they drove me and the hospital was about an hour away. And they drove me to the hospital and, you know, I, I woke up in the car and I remember being there and I was confused while we were going somewhere. And we got to the hospital and I sort of woke up and the doctor there uh, was seeing me and they were asking me about my alcohol intake. And of course I halved it, but even when I halved it, they were shocked. So that was when I sort of knew I was in trouble. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm halving how much I drink, but it still shocks people. And they did my blood alcohol level and it was a 0.42. And I started laughing and I said, that's ridiculous because... If somebody had a 0.42 blood alcohol level, they would be dead. So you're you're wrong or your device wrong. And he said, that's why we're worried. And I was perfectly coherent and talking to them. And they invited me to stay at the hospital for a couple of days, which I thought was unnecessary, and uh, started the detox 
process, and uh, I very nearly died during that process. Point um, four two. It was a point four two, and um, I was in coronary care and ICU for a long time. Um, and you know, they had to tell my uh, moms there this time. They had to tell my parents that I may not live through this, even being hospitalized. Wow. Um, and uh, I had leather straps on me, and um, why the leather straps? Because I was convulsing. Oh. And pulling my IVs out. And um, I came out of that and um, and everyone was happy. And, and they were like, okay, this will be the thing that finally puts... Because my family, looking at it from the outside, I'm sure still thought I hadn't decided to stop drinking. That I was... Even though I knew internally I decided to quit drinking two, three years ago and, and failed. But I'm sure to someone on the outside, it's like, well, if you want to quit drinking, just quit drinking. Do whatever you have to do. You've been to treatment. You've done this. And why wouldn't they? That's logical. Yeah. Like, that's absolutely logical. Yeah. And um, so that so they were so happy and they thought this was the thing. And uh, the doctors told them that this was a horrific experience for you, but he's not going to remember any of it. And um, that's that's got to be hard to hear. I mean, I've never been in that spot when you care about someone and you watch them go through this and you're thinking, man, this experience is going to be painful enough to make them change. And the doctor says, well, unfortunately, you're going to remember the experience, but he's not. And I don't. Um, wow. I, you I don't remember any of it? I don't remember any of it for more than 30 seconds or a minute at a time. Um, I remember my dad telling me if I make it, and this is, this is sort of a funny thing, but it's my, it's, it's, it's all that, it's all that you have when you're dealing with something this insane, which my alcoholism was. My dad said, if you can make it through this, I'll get you a new car. It's ridiculous that he said that, but what do you, I mean, what do you do? I'm an only child. I'm the only child that my mom and dad, and I'm this self-imposed crisis at 28. And I didn't have my first drink until I was out of high school. I mean, it's not like I've been drinking that long. I've been drinking for eight or nine years. So I go through that process and, um, and I'm in the, and I'm still in, still had to stay at the hospital. I wasn't in a detox unit. And um, these ladies who now, um, I mean, I, I just think God sent them to me. Their names were Sonia and Maybelline. And there was these two ladies and I just had to have a personal nurse to stay with me. And these ladies just sit and loved me. And they just talked to me about things. And, um, and I still stay in touch with them today. And, um, my mom had worked at that hospital for, she had spent her career at the hospital before she moved to Atlanta. So there was a lot of people we knew. And um, so I guess we're there on about the seventh day. And this lady, her name is Starling Bailey, this lady. And I just remember Starling, she was just so full of energy. So the opposite of me laying in a hospital bed. And she was maybe five foot tall and just spunky and very likable. And she comes in and she says, well, I've done some research and we have this research from, I think she said Vanderbilt, and the best long-term facility in the United States for, 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 for you, you know, because I'm, I'm, I have nothing at this point. Yeah. There's no family. There's no, the best place for you to go is MAR. And I'm like, MAR? Like, I don't even, I'm not even sure I want to go to treatment. I've already been to treatment. But what is MAR? And my mom said, well, where is it? And she said, it's in Atlanta. And she said, we're in Atlanta. And she gave her the address. And my parents lived one exit from there. And I'm no in kidding. a hospital in Tennessee. Um, so I, you know, I'm in Columbia, Tennessee. 
which is about four hours from here. It's just south of Nashville. And this little nurse in there says Mars. And they had never seen anybody to Mars. She just did some research on her own and found it. But it was, you know, five, ten minutes from my mom's house. So um, so I got in the car. And uh, I guess I was at the hospital for maybe nine days. And um, we came down to Mar, And by this time, they uh, the... I guess the Mar picnic had been, you know, that's a, the Mar annual picnic had been the week before. And, um, what year is this? 1998. 1998. Okay. And, uh, we come to Mar and they took me into Yule Hardman's office to kind of check me in on that Monday. So we went down to the apartments and, um, and we drove through there and my mom and stepdad were in the front seat and, um, and I was in the back seat and I was kind of, you know, kind of leaning up and we're talking and, and they said, well, what do you think? And I was like, you know, these aren't, you know, like I've stayed at nicer apartments than this. And then my mom said, yeah, you know, they could be nicer, but they are pretty nice. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't think I like it. And they said, okay. And I leaned back in the seat. And um, <laughs> I remember we kind of circled through the apartment complex and I'm thinking, you know, I wonder what's next. And I'm feeling pretty good. And we were pulling to turn back out onto the street. And I said, well, where are we going to go now? And my mom said, well, we're going home. And it was interesting because the word we're, yeah, like I was saying, what are we going to do now? Like, where are we going now? And it was like, my we're was us three. But she put an inflection on her we're that was very clear that her we're was two and mine was three. And I picked up on it and I said, well, what do you mean by that? And um, she said, well, we love you and we're worried about you. And if you want to go here, we are willing to pay for that and for you to go here. But if you choose not to go here, then then you're going to have to do your plan, which we're okay with, but we can't help you with that. And I said, well, I don't know anyone in Atlanta. I don't know what to do. And it was just like silence. And it's like, well, I guess those apartments aren't really that bad <laughs> as opposed to the option. So I came in on Monday morning and – um and my mom, and I'm 28 years old physically. I've been on earth 28 years, but I was not emotionally 28 or anywhere near it and um, or mentally. I had stunted my growth far before that. And and I agreed to come, and it was good. And my mom kissed me on the cheek, you know, like a, well, a 10 or 12-year-old going to <laughs> way to camp, which was basically what our relationship was. And she said, I'll call you tomorrow and check in on you. And... Um, one of the counselors said, you're not going to be able to talk to him for at least two weeks. And she said, what? And he said, yeah, you know, it's two weeks before you can talk to him. And um, there was no more family program then. There was just the counselors, you know, and they same information. But and she had to sit back down and she said, well, wait a minute. I need to know more about this. You know, he just went from 24 hour nurse care. And now you're telling me I can't check in with him. And I have a six year old son now. I can't I can't even imagine what it took for her to be in the situation she was in with me the night before in the hospital and then say, okay, I'm going to trust this place that I know no one here, but I'm going to, I'm going to walk out. And, um, I was self-centered to the extreme, but I broke a rule. And I recognized how hard that must be on some level for my mom. And I called her my first Saturday and, um, I had been at Mars since that Monday. And I said, Hey mom, this place is not that bad. I'm doing okay. Bye. And I hung up. And, and even by that Saturday, I had gotten hopeful. Like it was pretty quick, but I was like, man, this is, 
this is not going to be nearly what I thought it was going to be. What, um, how did the hope get in there? I think what happened for me is, and this is all seconds and inches stuff, you know, I mean, things happen like in a time that I don't get to choose and places I don't get to choose, but something happened different when I got here. And I don't necessarily think it was because of Mar, but it was, the time was right. And I could start hearing people talk about their experiences that I was current. I was having those experiences currently, but they were talking about them in the past tense. And I could hear people talk about being hopeless and people having no direction and not knowing where to turn and not trusting anyone. And that is exactly where I was. But it was also very clear that they weren't there anymore. And that just interested me because I think alcoholics and drug addicts can talk to each other like no one else can. And they even though I had never seen these people before, I knew they weren't exaggerating their stories or making things up. And I also knew that what they were talking about was past tense for them. And I was experiencing it in that moment. And I got curious and I'm like, well, how did you get from where I am right now to where you are? And they would start telling me just little things. And it was so hopeful for me. Mm-hmm. Even the guys in the apartment, you know, that, um, that weren't were that much further along. Yeah, just you. a little bit further. Because people that are that are a good distance further, I'm skeptical of those people. You know, somebody who says they haven't drank in a whole year, I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> you know, that's that's a little bit more. But if some guy says to me, you know, I haven't had a drink in 30 days and I haven't had one in two weeks, I'm interested in like, what do I do for the next 15 or 16 days to get to 30 days? I would like to know that because I believe you have done it. And I also believe you drink like I drink or you think like I think. And I want to know. But the guys with a year, or yeah, it's like that's a little bit. You probably weren't as bad off as me because you were as off, bad off as me. You wouldn't have quit drinking that long. Yeah, but thirty days, and then it keeps moving, and then all of a sudden, you're that guy. Right. And then I'm, I'm realizing these people don't want to hear anything from me. They don't. They don't. Re- I was yellow when I got tomorrow. Uh-huh. Like, I was literally yellow, and no one's gonna. No one's gonna believe that. So I have a little picture of myself. And if somebody doubts me, you know, I have a picture of the day I was admitted. I kept that out. And oh, I have I it. see that. Yeah, I have it at March on my bulletin board. And I'm just like, yeah. Yeah. It's a Polaroid camera from 1998, <laughs> but you can still see the yellow in there. <laughs> you show that to clients? Yes. Now? Yeah. If, if, if it's helpful to them. Yeah. If it's helpful to them. I was, you know, and I just kind of try to just somebody's thinking you don't understand or it wasn't that bad. And I'm able to say, well, I may not know exactly, but I had it. It was pretty bad too. Mm-hmm. And just as a way to give hope. So um, my first two roommates were JP and Dwayne in 1998. And I don't know where JP and Dwayne are today. I've kind of tried, you know, with social media and Facebook and things, I would love to try to talk to those guys and kind of see what's going on with them. Um, but I remember everything about them because they were my hope guys. They were, in, they instilled hope in me. And I don't know how I haven't drank since that time. And I don't know what, if either of them have or they haven't, but they gave me hope in that moment. Um, and it got me started. So I'm forever grateful for those two guys. I would love to know how they're doing. Um, yeah, but I think about them all the time. So what what uh, staff was here when you came here? That's um, still here. My residential manager was Rick McCain, and I despised Rick because um, – First of all, he had no, you know, he he was married and he had two cars and a house and a couple of kids. And, you know, he basically, you know, (laughs) 
went to bed before midnight and what a sellout. Yeah, he he had absolutely nothing of value <laughs> that I could um his life was not nearly as hard as mine. He couldn't identify or he couldn't relate. I should mention he that you guys are coworkers now yes, and it's, very close. And it's, uh probably He's one of the most important people in my life. He's been an amazing mentor. Uh I've learned as much from him as I have any person. But it wasn't that way for the first year or two that I knew him because he was my counselor. And, you know, he was responsible for holding boundaries and telling me no. Um, And I just didn't like him. So I met Doug when I got here. And Doug was the guy... um, we have two groups that are actually in our apartment where the staff comes over and they knock on the door because they, you know, it's, it's a, it's a Mars apartment, but it's, it's our home. So they don't just come in, they knock on the door. So Doug and he had a volunteer that would come with him and uh, her name was Gail and they would come in our apartment on Wednesday. And Wednesday was the day where we, you know, Doug and Gail and the community, which um, I think when I got here was seven guys, we would sit in the living room and Doug would just say, good news announcement celebrations. And then um, he would say, who needs time? And we would pick three people and you can talk about whatever you want to talk about. So the person, um, the person that had the issue would talk and people would give feedback, but Doug would kind of always go at the end. And he would always, in my view, kind of, kind of bring everything all together and put mm-hmm. something on them. And, um, and one day, you know, after being here for, for a few weeks, one day he did that, and I just kind of chuckled, and um, and he looked at me, and I don't remember what he said. Maybe he said, "Do you do you want to say something, or you know, what are you thinking?" And he's smiling. It wasn't a confrontation. Yeah. And I said, I just think it's funny the way you do that. And um, he said, "Do what?" And I said, "Well, I don't really think it's that you're that good a counselor. It's just that if you just guess enough, like if there's enough stuff going on, and you guess, eventually you're going to be right about something." And he goes, yeah, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and I was like, man, like, how do you just agree with that? Like, that was kind of a slap. I thought that was a slap in the face. And um, and he was like, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. And I'm like, wow. You were trying okay. to take him down a notch. Yeah, I was trying work. to say, you know, you don't know, like, like, you don't know as much as everybody says you know. Everybody thinks so highly of you, but you really just say a lot of stuff, and eventually something's going to stick. Yeah. And he was like, yeah, that's pretty much what it is. And I was like, wow. And um, okay. And uh, it's like, this guy's a little different. And then I started hearing him talk about weakness. And um, he was saying, I'll pray for weakness. I don't want to be strong. And I really got, I think that's when I got close to him because I have conversations about that. And I like that idea because I, I kind of was starting to develop that with the spiritual idea that being strong is really of no value there's a lot more strength and weakness and not, not humiliation or belittlement or meekness, just weakness. Like I'm really here to do whatever's right in front of me, not a lot more. And, um, and I like that idea and I still like that idea. Um, you know, that's the reason I I say a prayer every morning before I leave my house because of, because of that right around the five or six month mark, I started really appreciating more and more. And I started, seeing the the humanness of the counselors and how real it was. And um, I, I start thinking now, well, you know, I've been sober for six months. Maybe I am actually going to stay sober. Um, you know, I'd never really had that feeling before. Mm-hmm. Like I'm 28 
and I'm about to be 29 and maybe this works. I don't know. What am I going to do? Like I have, I have no idea about what I'm going to do with my life. Um, my uncle had given me a job at his, at his cable business. And I'm sure I was a horrible employee, but basically just because I was his nephew and he, and he loves me and he was trying to help me. I don't remember if he just directly told me, but he, somehow the message got to me, it's best that you don't come back, which is, was, was a very, very loving thing to do. And I'm sure it wasn't easy, but it was an extremely loving thing to do to, to keep that boundary because it let me ask myself the questions I needed to ask. What do you want to do? And um, things are going well and I'm in three quarter and I really like it. I like the process. I like coming back and talking to guys and um, I decide I need to do something for Mar. And when the year comes up, um, I, I just wanted to do something. And there were these ladies that used to come in in the afternoon and they would um, do the mailings for us. They would do the envelopes and they would have like a little sponge and water and they would just yeah. do, like seal envelopes and put things in there. And I was like, I could do that. And I like to clean. I really like to clean so I could clean the building. Um, there's a ton of things I can do. And you had to be sober for a year before you could volunteer. So I asked Doug and I said, my birthday's coming up in June and I would like to volunteer next month or I'd like to do something. What would you like for me to do? And he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll do anything. You know, I like, I would do the thing with these ladies or the cleaning or there's, I'm not really good at fixing things, but, but give me something, you know? And he said, well, I was thinking about putting you in a group. And I was like, okay, what kind of group do you want me to go to? And he goes like a group. And I'm like, what do you mean group? And he goes, like, the groups you go to. And I just kind of started laughing. And I'm like, why would I do in a group? And he goes, well, you could volunteer in, a like, a community meeting. And I'm like, and do what? And he goes, well, you went through that process, and now you can help other people. And it had never even <laughs> crossed my mind. Yeah. And and the reason, it, the reason it hadn't is I just thought I was of no value. You know what I mean? I just thought that I my value was just in not drinking, like me not drinking was helpful. But as far as contributing something or having something to give, I just never even considered that. So I said, all right, you know, if you would like for me to do that, that makes me feel good. I'll do it. And I said, whose group do you want me to do it in? And he goes, I already thought about this. And I was thinking Bill Anderson. And I said, I'm not doing that. And um, he said, well, why not? And I said, I, there's like eight counselors at Mar. I know them all. And I will be glad to do anything in any of those groups, but I'm not sitting in that guy's group. Just a little bit about Bill. Bill and I are the exact same age. And I, I had known Bill. Like he, we had obviously, we had been in a group together, but he had never really had a therapeutic contact with me. He was never the guy to work on anything with me. He kind of came after I went through the process. But Bill was the exact same age as I was. He was a good looking guy. He had a black truck. He had a beautiful wife. He had a college degree. He had a house and he had a one-year-old son. And I'm like, if they're like, this guy literally has every single thing that I wish I had. And I don't have <laughs> one of those things. I'm not going to sit with him for an hour a week. And, um, and I did it. And so I started volunteering at Mar right when my second year of sobriety started. And I went on Mondays at 3.30. And it was funny enough to an apartment in that same apartment complex that we had drove through a year earlier. And I said it was not nice <laughs> enough for me. And, um, and, and 
he, you know, after a couple of weeks, he said, you know, if you have something, if you have feedback or if you have something you want to say or experience or whatever, you can say it. And I'd like, you know, you can contribute to the thing too. And somewhere along the way, I just started doing that more and more. And we would talk after the group and I kind of became like the co-counselor, you know, it was like he, he was definitely the counselor, but he would let me, you know, contribute. And we developed a friendship. I have no idea how this happened, but we developed a friendship. And um, less than a year later, and we're really friends, you know, we yeah. talk about personal things. And um, he had his second child on the way. And he said, listen, we really need someone to um, to be like our night person, like for, for their son. Like if, if she goes into labor at 10 o'clock at night or in the morning, we need a person to be there. Would you like to be it? And it was the same thing with Doug asked me to volunteer. It's like, well, yeah, we're friends, but you want me to come to your house and be with your son. You're trusting me to stay overnight with your son and take care of him. I'm never, I don't even have any kids. And it's like, man, there's no one I would trust more to do that than you. And I thought, okay, I'll say yes, but that's not going to happen. Right. Like she's not going to go into labor after 10 o'clock at night. And, um, I get a telephone call in May and hey, Matt, completely calm. And I'm like, yeah, what's up? He's like, you're on. I'm like, what do you mean I'm on? It's like, you need to come up to Sugar Hill. We're getting ready to go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and um, and when his son woke up that morning, I was the first person to say, you have a sister. And it's like, how, how, and it's that thing that I was talking about earlier. It's like, how do you get from there to there? Like, how does that happen? How do you get from being in a parking lot and saying, these apartments aren't very nice, <laughs> I'm not sure I want to stay here, to going through that entire process, volunteering in a group in that apartment? How do you go from saying, I have nothing to offer, I'll clean the building, to, no, we want you to help the counselor? And how do you go from just complete, I mean, I don't want to use the word hate, but I hated that guy <laughs> because of, like, this is the... Like, if you could have written down, I mean, all the way down to, I would like a black truck. <laughs> it's just everything. And now we're friends, and it's, like, nice, and he trusts me, and I trust him. And, and best I'm, friends today. I, today. I was just going to say that. I've been with you at lunchtime when you're like, I don't know, let's ask Bill about that. And you call him <laughs> on the phone and put him yeah. on speakerphone and ask him a question. And yeah. now he's the CEO of of uh, Lakeview or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, how, yeah. Do you, how does it go from there to there? Wow. And I have, um, I have a, I have millions of those that I could share. And it's not because of anything I did. It's almost solely because of getting out of the way and being a little open-minded, like don't do anything, just freeze and try to open your mind a little bit. And then these things happen and it's like, man um and it has come complete full circle because bill babysits for me now <laughs> so their their kids were were teenagers and growing up and when when my son came so yeah can you talk about your relationship with doug over the years and and how that's changed so um i got my driver's license back after about I don't know, maybe two years. And I started driving and I left Mar, you know, I was volunteering, but I wasn't living at Mar anymore. And I was at the center one day and just kind of hanging my head. And he said, what's wrong, Matt? And I said, man, I got this new car. My dad gave me this car and um, 
and I drove it for a month and I just found out it's going to have to have a, a new fuel pump. It's going to cost $500 or something. And he's like, okay. And he goes, well, what are you so upset about? And I'm like, well, I've never really saved money and I just saved $500 and it's going to take all $500, you know? Mm -hmm. And he goes, okay. And he goes, but why are you so upset? And I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> because it's every dime I have. And he goes, I understand the money. I understand the car. Why are you so upset? And I said, because it's my money and it's all gone. And he goes, oh, I understand now. I didn't, I didn't get what you were saying. And I thought, finally. And I sort of started to walk away. And he said, you thought that money was your money. <laughs> and I said, it is my money. I work for it and I put it in there. And he said, no, that's God's money. He said, if, if everything was fair and everything was the way it's supposed to be, you wouldn't be able to earn a living. You wouldn't have a job. You wouldn't have a car to have a fuel pump. And I mean, you know, there's not too many people that can say something like that to me and it and it soak in and it didn't soak in then. But then when I went home that night, I started thinking about it and I had started letting some gratitude edge in and I really got in touch with my hospital stay. You know, I'd been sober about mm -hmm. two years before I really got in touch with that. And I started kind of developing this theme for my life that is... I really, if everything were just and everybody got what they deserved, which I had screamed for my entire life, everything should be, I would be dead. I would absolutely positively be dead. I have done enough. I've done more than enough to kill myself. I've put myself in enough dangerous situations where other people have done the same thing that I did and they lost their life. But when I did it, I didn't lose my life. And I don't have an explanation for that. But that perspective helps me not complain about the fuel pump on my car going out. And that doesn't mean I don't get to get upset about it. And it doesn't mean that I don't get to get frustrated. It means that I get frustrated and get upset, and then it's time to move on. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you get and different problems have different times. But the next day, it's like, yeah, it wasn't pleasant, and it's unfortunate, and I can be mad. But in the context of things, um. I'm, you know, if my fuel pump breaking is not fair, that means everything else needs to be, I don't want that. I'll take the, I'll take what I get. Right. And when I look at my life today, um, my life not being fair is by far and away the thing I'm most grateful for. And Doug helped me with that. Um, and um, he taught me that questions were more important than answers. Um, he taught me that I will absolutely positively never be perfect. And if I ever were perfect, it would be a lonely place because nobody identifies with perfection, but everybody identifies with failure. Uh, failures are our biggest connecting points. So embrace them and share them and be transparent with them. And it helps me and helps everyone else. And, um, and just the, just the father stuff, you know, I've listened and watched, all the dads at Mar, all those years that I, I didn't have kids and I watched them and I listened to them talk about their things and their stuff. And, and I, I, I tell you, it's, it's hard to explain in words, but I admired them a whole lot more for their humility and sharing their failures and like, man, I really missed the mark on this, you know, and he came and said this and I probably should have, I should have supported him in this way, but I, instead I did this. And I just admired these guys that could, could be so honest and transparent that way. And, um, and I try to father that way 
you know, I, I, I have the young, I, one, one other guy, Will, he's, Will and I have the two youngest. Mm-hmm. And so we get this, you know, so how do you like, if that's your boss and he's teaching you all of the stuff that we're not even talking about professionally, like just mm-hmm. professionally, the therapeutic um, methods and where to be aware of my weaknesses, um, um, where to use my strengths, all of that stuff. It's like, that's his expectation. That stuff's almost a given with Doug. Like yeah. he did all that. Yeah. That's almost just, he's an excellent boss at work. <laughs> yeah. And that part's almost not even on the radar because of all these over over the top things that aren't even part of work, just life things. Um, you know, so I, what do you, like, how do you, how do you explain that? I mean, my only thing is I try to do it for the other guys. Cause I'm sort of one of the long time guys now. And I try to, I try to give to them what he did to me. Not like he did it, of course, but I try to just be available and, I share all of the mistakes I'm making yeah. with them. And that's that's when we got close. So the in uh in some of the losses we experience, you know, we deal with a lot of we deal with a lot of people that are suffering from addiction and and we've had some losses and we've gone to funerals together and cried together and questioned ourselves together and questioned being in this career, questioned being at Mar. We've done all those things together, which lets us be here. That's awesome. I have a, a Mar um, the relationships that I've built both when and being treated here, being a volunteer here, and then working here um, probably taught me pretty much everything I know in life. My family tried to teach me these lessons. I had access to these things. I wasn't deprived in that way. Um, for whatever reason, the second's an interesting. I didn't hear, I couldn't hear the things that were being taught to me. And I, you know, um, I don't think the treatments that I went to before Mar were not good treatments. I don't yeah. think they failed in any way, but there's something special about Mar. Um, and I'm blessed that it kind of came together for me here in the way it did. And now it's my career. And I, I really can't imagine not working here. I really can't. Um, and you, uh, you've talked to me about how it's like, like for you, this is kind of like family, like you're kind of, you're in for the long haul being Absolutely. at Mar. Absolutely. When when did that click for you or when did that or was that kind of a slow thing? Um it's interesting cuz it's a it's a it's not like it's it, it's not like it happens and it's over. I I reconsider that often. And and my idea on that is you can't really be somewhere unless you consider not being there. And this is scary to folks. You know, I've had this conversation with a lot of my friends and they're like, I'm not so sure about that. And anything that I'm committed to, um, I really consider the opposite of it. And that helps me to commit to it. Mm. So I love Mar. I'm committed to Mar. I like being here. But a couple of times a year, I'll say to myself, I wonder what it would be like over here. And here's some advantages that I could have here. And here's some advantages. This career, this career change would give me this and this career change would give me this. And that makes me love being here even more. Cause I really, I really get to go, man, like even given the options, this is it. This is where I want to be. And that lets me more be here rather than say, I am never leaving. And that's the way it is. And I, I like to look at the other. So it kind of happens. It happens all the time. So when you when you do that and like go to the you know play the devil's advocate or whatever you want to call it when you look, consider the other side what comes up for you about 
mar that you want that you decide okay actually i do want to stay here um when i was in business school there was a um a man that uh very successful in business extremely successful in business in atlanta um he um he uh brokered hotels like huge things and um I was I, I met with him one morning for breakfast and I was just asking him for some direction and for some advice. And um, he gave me some options. He said, here's some different things that I think you would be good at. Here's some things you could do with your personality. And, and I agreed with him on all of them. And um, he said, but, you know, I really would like for you to consider. Like what you're doing here. Um, I know you in this way, working at Mar, and this is the impact, you know, that that had on my family and this is how I appreciate you. And he goes, I can't help but think there's a couple of school teachers that I'm friends with. And they came to me with the same thing you did. And, and, and we, we worked a deal. We, you know, they bought a business together and the mm -hmm. business was extremely successful, extremely successful. But two years later, the teachers asked him to buy their parts so they could go back to teaching. <laughs> and, um, and he shared that with me and I identified with that. And he said, here's, and I'm looking at him and I think, I think he may have thought I didn't get it, but I'm actually really getting it. And I'm like, yeah. wow. And he said, here, here's the bottom line. I have never been at the mall or I've never gone to the movie theater and have someone come up and hug my neck and say, thank you so much for selling me that building. Thank yeah. you so much. <laughs> right. And he said, but I have been with you when I see people come up to you and hug you and thank you for being a part of their recovery and thank you for being a part of their life. And he goes, there's a lot to be said for that. And I thought, you know, I like those. I like that. I like being involved with people in that way. I like the intimacy of that. I like hugs. <laughs> um, he has complete confidence I could go do this. And, you know, I do too. But I think I, think I would be like those teachers. I think there's some great advantage to some of those things. But I think for me there would be a hollowness or an emptiness. And yeah, so I need to go there and I still go there. Mm -hmm. Like that, that happened in 2007 or 2008, what I'm telling you now. And I yeah. think about that a couple of times a year and every now and then I'll think that man, yeah. I see him. I'm like, thank you for taking that time at breakfast. That was another, that was another, like we were talking about earlier, be honest with me. And it's not necessarily what I want to hear. I'd like for you to sign yeah. me up for my plan. But right. he, he was honest with me, benefited me greatly. And I still could have, I, he wasn't saying don't do it. He was saying you need to consider this. Well, once I considered it, man, no, I'm mm -hmm. going to stay. I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. When I see you here, it seems like you're not even working. You know, like when I see you, and I'm sure it probably doesn't feel like that all the time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It doesn't seem like a grind to you from, no. what, from, from the outside. No, there's um, this, it's, it's the, I mean, I grew up here. I learned yeah. everything that I know about anything here. Um, there's another side to that. There's a flip side to that. And, and it's uncomfortable to talk about. And, you know, Doug has, um, Doug has mentored me in this too, but we deal with a tremendous amount of loss. Um, we just hear and listen and sit with a tremendous amount of loss. Um, addiction and alcoholism, you know, it, it takes time away. It takes relationships. Sometimes there's deaths involved. Um, and and there's a just loss um and we sit with that and then we we uh we hold that with the clients and we have to take care of ourselves 
um, or, or, or burnout and burnout and, and, uh, relapse for people that are in recovery and work in this field, high rates, because, uh, from what I've been told, because what we, two reasons for what we sit with and what we do without caring for ourselves and then, and then not tending to our own recovery. So there's an, there's the other side to it too, but, um, I like that part. Like I like being the person that's when someone is in their worst moment, I like being available to them to be able to be with them. And I know how to take care of myself after that. Mm -hmm. Um, and we do, we do an amazing job of that here just as a, as a staff of checking in on each other and making sure uh, we go on walks, even if it's just around the building or down the block and we do a great job of that. So, you know, my, our responsibility uh, is to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves so we can be available to the clients. Mm -hmm. And if we're not available to the clients, this model doesn't work because it's all about relationships. So if we're not available, it's 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 of no use. And, you know, in the you know, the primary counselors and the, the residential and, the um, you know, Doug, the director and Rick, the professional liaison, there's kind of this nine core. And then, of course, there's the family counselors, too. But just dealing directly with the guys, there's nine of us, and we are we are very much like a family. Um, the newest guy out of the nine has been here for five years, I think. <laughs> and he's the new guy. Right. So we've been through deaths and births and tragedies and successes. And um, I think that is a great benefit to our clients um, that they get to see uh, – get to see a family operate and get to have counselors that are available to them um, as they go through their process. Um, and hopefully they start to develop that in their community. I tell the guys a lot of times we, you know, they'll ask me about a decision, you know, can we do this or can we do this? And I'm a, most of the time it's something that has to be talked about. And I say, I need to talk to these guys. And just like we ask you to, if you come ask me, can I do this? I usually say, well, what do the guys you live with think about that? Mm -hmm. Let's talk to them first and get their input. If I had my, like, if you could say, hey, what's one thing about Mar you wish everybody that outside of Mar knew? Or, like, if there's someone thinking about sending someone here or there's something thinking about volunteering or being involved, I wish they knew how long the staff has been here and there's been zero turnover. And it's like, that's just astounding to me. Like, what could be happening at this place that makes people not leave once they start working there? Um, and it's the relationships without a doubt. If you could pass on one thing to people that are listening, what would it be? It doesn't have to be anything long or. But. I, I will tell you what that is. It's this. Um, I think a lot of times when people come into recovery, this just speaking for recovery people, but I'm sure this works across the board. People that are coming into recovery sometimes and they go through the process and they're sort of forgiven and you can blame it on the recovery, but sometimes in recovery, other things happen. And there's even more shame created when people are in recovery and they do things that they're not supposed to do, no matter what it may be. Maybe it's being dishonest. Maybe it's stealing something. Maybe it's being unfaithful, whatever the case may be. And it, and in my experience, uh, being in recovery, it's more shame associated with that because the idea is I'm supposed to be living this way, mm -hmm. yet I did this. And whether you're in recovery or if you're not, I would just encourage you to share your humanness with somebody that you trust because whatever it is that you've done, 
or have done or are doing, you didn't originate it. It's been done before. And the key is having enough humility to do what you need to do to, to not have that feeling anymore. And if you're going to not have that feeling anymore, that pretty much means you got to stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> um, but it's sort of cascades. And I've just seen a lot of people get in trouble because they didn't want to destroy someone else's image of them because of something that was happening and they could have saved themselves a lot of pain. And I've been the, been fortunate to have been the person that people come to with that. And they're always, always without fail, completely ashamed and don't want to tell me. And I ask them and they're like, because you think of me in this way, or you thought of me in this way. And I am more impressed when someone lowers their pride and trusts me and shares some fault or vulnerability. It's amazing to me because that I want to have that quality and it's hard for me, but I've never really experienced someone do that. And then things get worse. Mm -hmm. They always get better. So if I could share one thing with someone, it's that, and I think all of us have it. It's that one thing that I'm not okay with, or I wish this was different. And it usually can be shared and halved at least sometimes maybe even more. So pride Pride's a killer. And um, yeah, I think that would be it. That was great. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mar Experience Stories of Recovery. I'm Matt Shedd. Our show is co produced by Angela Edmonds, and our executive producer is David Tate. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>